Hello everyone. Guess who's back? Back again. It's me, the real Slim Shady, back at it again and here to stay. If you've noticed by our new cover photo, this podcast has now changed its name from Keeping Up With Kennedy to Keeping It Real With Kennedy. And I think that this name better reflects the overall goal and mission statement of the podcast that we went over in our last episode. The mission statement is the same. Sharing experiences, opinions, facts, and truth with listeners in a thought-provoking way to inspire them to get in the driver's seat and make the world a better place. All while having a little fun and embracing each other's differences. Today I'm going to briefly discuss a movie I saw and two books I've read recently, and then we're going to dive into the more practical topic of behavior change. So without further ado, go ahead and sit back, crack your favorite beverage, and let's get into it. Ah, it's good to be back. So I recently watched the 2020 Netflix movie, The Social Dilemma, in which the creators and CEOs of the most popular social media platforms we use today, like Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and more, all pose technology as an existential threat to humanity. Now, one of them fittingly asked the question, how do you wake up from the matrix when you don't know you're in the matrix? The movie won two Primetime Emmy Awards and had 38 million viewers in the first four weeks. In this candid investigatory documentary, we are taken on a journey from the insiders of the tech industry to get a glimpse into just how much our phones and the media monetize, control, divide, manipulate, polarize, and distract us, all without us batting an eye. The tech creators tell stories of how they went into starting these programs with good intentions. Back in 2006, the Facebook like button was meant to be a way to send positive vibes to your friends and provide a new form of social connection and togetherness. Fast forward to today, not getting enough likes from friends and things of that nature has been causing people to become more sad and lonely, which is the opposite effect of what its use was originally intended for. The rates of preteen and teenage suicide and depression have exponentially skyrocketed in recent years. The movie goes over some hard data on teenage depression and suicide rates increasing right at the dawn of Facebook, Instagram, and social media. I'll have you go and watch the movie for yourself to get the specifics. We can't say this is a direct cause and effect relationship here, but the correlation in the data is definitely undeniable. And what the creators honestly reflect upon in the documentary is that they did not properly consider the negative effects of these platforms with enough weight when they first started. And then once it was all out into the world, it felt like there was no turning back. And now sure, getting lots of likes and comments on your photos is great and increases all of your happy brain chemicals, right? But what about when you see all your friends getting tons of likes and you barely get any? There's a reason that mental illness is skyrocketing in recent years, and it doesn't take an Einstein to figure out how it's all connected. Take a moment to reflect on a time when social media made you feel really happy or excited, and then again, a time when it made you feel really sad, hopeless, or depressed. I'm guessing you readily have examples of both instances. Shoshana Zuboff, a professor emeritus at Harvard who wrote the book The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, describes social media as a drug in the movie. It has all the makings of one, with the potential to have worse and longer-lasting mental health side effects than hard drugs. Is it a coincidence that the only industries that call their customers users are illegal drugs and social media? Now, they try to offer some hope at the end and say that the way technology works can change. Humans created technology, and likewise, 
we should have the power to change technology, right? And not just the power, but the moral responsibility to change it. For me personally on this podcast, is it hypocritical or paradoxical to be using social media to talk about how bad it is to use social media? I've thought a lot about this question, and I've always had a hard time staying consistent on social media because there's always a part of me that says, I know this is bad for me, the algorithm just wants me to keep me here and keep scrolling for their agenda, blah, blah, blah. But then there's the other side of the coin. When I get to make new connections with people that I otherwise wouldn't have, I get to encourage others, spread love and honest reflection, and raise awareness on a bigger scale than I could do in person. And I think it's because of those reasons that I say that we all band together and use social media against itself. It's quickly becoming a means to divide and manipulate, but I say we take it back to its roots and just start posting like it's 2006 on Instagram and we're just posting genuine pictures of our lives that make us happy and liking other people's photos to support them because we genuinely like them, not as some calculated move that we overanalyze when really the odds are you're only hurting yourself by scrolling through the entire list of all of who's liked his photos and what her comment said on it and why they liked it. Okay, switching topics. I recently finished reading the books Factfulness by Hans Rosling and How Minds Change by David McRaney. The full title of the first book is Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. And as a seeker of fact and truth, I was intrigued. Things in the world today just seem so out of control, hopeless, and spiraling out of control now, don't they? I was happy to be proven wrong on these assumptions. The introduction begins with a 13-question pre-test that you take about your assumptions of the facts of the world today. I scored a solid 6 out of 13. Yikes. I had some reading to do. I learned that just 200 years ago, in 1800, 85% of the world population lived in extreme poverty. In 1966, this number dropped down to 50%. And in 2017, this number was just 9 percent of the world population. And of that 9% still living in extreme poverty, life expectancy has gone up by 30 years since 1800. Now, over the past 20 years, the extreme poverty rate has gone down from 29% to 9%. Think about it in 20 years. Now, at a rate of a 1% decrease every year, could we see extreme poverty levels eradicated within the next 10 years? I'm not sure about that, but I'm optimistic to see the number continue to decrease. Rosling presents the chapters in the book as 10 instincts that we have as humans that prevent us from seeing the world the way it really is, or in other words, what prevent us from seeing the facts. Now these instincts are the gap instinct, the straight line instinct, the size instinct, the destiny instinct, the blame instinct, the negativity instinct, the fear instinct, the generalization instinct, the single instinct, and the urgency instinct. And because I want to encourage more reading on this podcast, I won't give you too many more details. I want you to read the book yourself with honest reflection and see what you learn. It might surprise you. You can even get the book for free from the library. It's crazy. The second book I read recently is How Minds Change by David McRaney. I thought it was very interesting that there was a common theme between The Social Dilemma, the movie, Factfulness, and How Minds Change. The one concept that tied all three of these together was that people are not persuaded or convinced by facts anymore. Even if you bring in Nobel Prize winning research, most people either don't fully listen, don't care, 
or we'll just stay stuck in their opinion about the world or about issues of social justice, politics, conspiracy theories, or anything else for that matter, despite being presented with contradictory factual evidence. The essence of how minds change lies at the intersection of the psychology, neuroscience, and philosophy of the human condition. Many years ago, a dress almost broke the internet. In one poorly lit photograph, it seemed as though half of social media users saw a yellow and white dress, and the other half saw a blue and black dress. The people who saw one side versus the other were so sure in their convictions that they couldn't comprehend how the other side saw things differently. But it was the same exact photo graph. As detailed in How Minds Change, this concept is well understood in neuroscience, but not necessarily by the general public. And so McRaney says, and I quote from page 59, reality itself, as we experience it, isn't a perfect one-to-one account of the world around us. The world, as you experience it, is a simulation running inside your skull, a waking dream. We each live in a virtual landscape of perpetual imagination and self-generated illusion, a hallucination informed over our lifetimes by our senses and thoughts about them, updated continuously as we bring in new experiences via those senses and think new thoughts about what we have sensed. Let me give you a minute to digest that. So for all of you who have been wondering, the answer is yes. You and I and everyone else around us are all living in our own self-generated simulations. Now, in order to get minds to change, you have to get hearts to change. And that's the hard part. That's the part we're not doing anymore. Nowadays, we come to people and present them with all the facts of behavior change and why they should stop smoking or why they should support LGBTQ rights or why they should vote for a particular political candidate. But what we're missing is the heart. You see, when you build rapport with someone and truly try to get to know them for who they are because you truly do genuinely care, that begins to set the stage. You share stories with them. You appeal to their heart before you appeal to their mind. Because it turns out, what drives most of our decisions isn't our heads anymore, but our hearts. We make rash, emotional, impulsive decisions based on no logic at all, and we don't even bat an eye. Because humans are emotional, social creatures. Think about it. How much of your social media posts do you make to anticipate likes so that you can feel better about yourself, or even further? How many posts do you make for reputation management within your community? You want other people to see you as a happy, fun, carefree, educated, well-traveled, or whatever it may be type of person, and so you post things that are in line with that view of yourself. This is reputation management, and we do it every single day. This is the basis for tribal psychology. The social dynamics of many ideas and topics are becoming more important than the facts and objective data about those topics themselves. That to me seems a little dangerous. So whenever you're trying to convince someone of a truth or a fact that you believe to be true, you can't forget the social dynamics of your relationship with that other person. You have to lead with your head, but know that your heart will bias it whether you are consciously aware of it or not. As humans, we evolved as scientists, performing experiments, testing our hypotheses as to how to build the best fire or how to make light or how and where to hunt, and how to best protect those we love. Changing our minds is one of our greatest strengths as a species, going all the way back to the Ice Age. Don't you think there's a reason that humans survived and mammoths didn't? 
because we were able to recognize and admit when we were wrong and quickly adapt to find a better method or way of doing something because our very survival as a species depended on it. Remember when we used to think that the earth was the center of the universe? Now at the time, as humans, we didn't know any better. We were just trying to make sense of the world around us. But when new evidence presented itself, gradually, over time, we tested that evidence and found contradictory ideas to be true. And then we gradually accepted the new evidence and changed our minds as a society. Changing our minds is innate. It's biology, it's psychology, but the difference is now we don't feel like our survival depends on it, because in a lot of ways, it doesn't really. And as we learned in factfulness, a large proportion of the world today doesn't have to worry about going and hunting to get their food every day. There's a grocery store right down the street. We are able to survive now without truly needing to adapt. And also in the modern day, if you change your mind about one of your long-held beliefs, you can lose trust in your community or your following. Think about it. If you place your identity in being a Christian, for example, and one day after a long period of reflection, you change your mind and you become an atheist, you may lose some of your Christian friends. Or if you identify as someone who believes in a flat earth and one day you come to accept that the world is not actually flat, you may lose credibility in your community of flat-earther friends. Reputation management becomes tricky when you change your mind sometimes. You can even seem like a bandwagoner or someone who gets swayed by trends. But changing our minds about things to become better educated and adapted to the world around us used to be a good thing. We used to be able to admit that we were wrong about something and pivot to what was right, or at least more right at the time. My, how the times have changed. I'm going to pause my reflections on this topic here to quote the lyrics to the song Ancient Dreams in a Modern Land by Marina. Now, I did this once before in the episode titled Honest Abe and Disney Colts, but I feel like this is a good time and place to once again pause and reflect through music. Our ancestors had to fight to survive just so we could have a chance of a life. We're not here so we can blow it all. We could bear witness to the rise and the fall. You don't have to be like everybody else. You don't have to fit into the norm. You're not here to conform. Now I am here to take a look inside myself and recognize that I could be the eye, the eye of the storm. I am not my body, not my mind, or my brain. I am not my thoughts or feelings. I am not my DNA. I am the observer. I'm a witness of life. I live in the space between the stars and the sky. What's your purpose? Why were you put on earth? We're now living in a seminal age. The walls are being broken and we're ready for change. Okay, one more topic I want to cover from McGraney's book is the topic of street epistemology. Now, I had never heard of this before reading this book, and ever since, I've been fascinated by it, and I've been trying it out in my conversations with some of my housemates and my friends. So epistemology is a branch of philosophy defined as the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods, validity, and scope. Epistemology is an investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. And so on their website, the creators of street epistemology define what they do as, quote, a way to help people reflect on the quality of their reasoning through civil conversation, end quote. That's it, you guys. 
Street epistemology is the modern-day missing link to help us become less polarized as a country, a society, humans in general. Street epistemology is, and I quote, great for anyone who cares about understanding other people and having productive conversations about things you may differ on. The method they use has a life of its own, driven by a community of people interested in discussing difficult topics, seeking truth, and reflecting on the methods we use to arrive at our deep convictions. The community promotes the method as a way of creating understanding, combating tribalism, think us versus them mentality when you think of tribalism, and improving public dialogue in general, irrespective of someone's political leanings, religious background, or other convictions, end quote. Now you may be thinking, what is this amazing method they're using? And how can I learn it and apply it so that I can have a conversation with my Uncle Tony about why he thinks abortion should be illegal? The method is simple. They appeal to the heart. Now, in How Minds Change, McRaney boils their method down to nine steps of conversation. I won't get too deep into the steps here because, again, I want to encourage people to read more. So go read the book yourself. I've linked it in the description of this podcast, along with the official Street Epistemology website that is loaded with resources, courses, frequently asked questions, and more information. Now, I personally think that in today's day and age, street epistemology is the antithesis of what social media's negative trajectory embodies. And we need to get out on the street, in person, and have real live, face-to-face conversations with people who think differently than we do. We can't just do it over our phones. We need to be open to understanding that there are different ways to see the world other than the way that we see it, no matter how strongly we believe something should be true or not. Other people have not been exposed to the information that we have been, nor have they had the experiences that we have had that lead us to our own personal conclusions. Remember how it's all a simulation? It shocks me that we don't set our pride down more often and honestly ask what others believe without feeling the need to defend ourselves, but instead out of genuine curiosity about who they are as a person and what they hold to be true. On page 236, McGraney says, and I quote, It's an illusion that you are talking about the facts. You both think that you are talking about the issue, but what's more important is the person. We can't have public opinions and laws change without having opinionated people there to change them. Now, when I was in physical therapy school, we learned about all these different models of behavior change. So in this line of work, we build relationships with our patients and clients and are often in a position to help guide them toward positive behavioral change, whether that be improving their diet, quitting smoking, or really about anything at all. And so one of the most common theories across multiple disciplines is called the trans-theoretical model of change. This model proposes that there are five stages of behavioral change consisting of pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. In the pre-contemplation stage, people do not have any intention in the foreseeable future to change their behavior. This may be due to many reasons, whether it be unawareness of the pros of behavior change or overemphasis on the perceived cons of changing their ways. Now, once someone gets to the next stage, the contemplation stage, they do have an intention to change. They may now be more open-minded to practically considering the pros and cons of behavioral change, recognizing that their behavior may be problematic, but may still not feel an impetus to push them forward to actually implement the change. And so the third stage is called the preparation stage. And that's where people begin to believe that changing their behavior can actually improve their life. They may even begin making small steps toward behavior change and are generally ready to take action within about the next month. 
once they arrive at the action stage, they have changed their desired behavior and intend to stick to the new change. With about six months of consistency, they will arrive at the maintenance stage, where they work to prevent relapse to earlier stages. Now, there is a sixth stage, sometimes mentioned called the termination stage, in which people have no desire to return to their unhealthy behaviors, and they're certain they won't relapse. But this is rarely achieved in practice, though, and people tend to stay on the maintenance stage after any behavioral change. I think one thing we need to address here is that you personally cannot change people. That is impossible. You cannot change people. People must want to change themselves, and when they're ready, they'll do it. Everyone is more or less ready for different things at different times, and having a conversation about behavior change must be genuine and brought up at the proper time and in the proper context. Maintaining behavioral changes is often easier when we have someone to keep us accountable. Since we're all influenced by social dynamics and environmental factors, having an established rapport and a relationship with someone is always a good first step before asking to help them with a behavioral change. Remember what we learned already in this episode. Facts don't convince people to change. It takes one person's heart to change another person's heart, and the mind will then be able to follow suit. Take, for example, if I'm working with someone I just met who has smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years, or who is absolutely dependent on their vape to function and make it through the day, telling them, smoking is bad for you, you need to stop, likely won't do much of anything to change their behavior, especially in the long term. Odds are, they already know the facts, it's written on every box they buy, and they don't care about changing their behavior because they enjoy smoking. Many people argue something along the lines of, well, I'm gonna die eventually anyways, and I might as well enjoy my life to the fullest while I can, or something like that, to justify their unhealthy lifestyle behaviors. They know the facts, and they have personally justified their reasoning for continuing to smoke or whatever else it may be that they're doing. So once you see someone a few times and you begin to get to know them, relate to them, reciprocally share personal stories, and truly care about them for who they are, that is the proper context to begin asking them about any unhealthy or problematic behavior. You shouldn't try to change them or tell them that they're wrong or anything like that. That is never the goal. Remember, you can't change people. Behavior change is often a secondary resultant of genuine human care and connection. So oftentimes, people have genuine, credible, and understandable reasons for doing the things they do, whatever it may be. Like, you don't know this person's past. Maybe they're smoking for good reason. When you ask someone about their behaviors out of genuine curiosity and a desire to learn about who they are and what makes them the person they are and why they do the things they do, anything could be possible. You just have to be humble and be patient. And so I'll leave you guys with one last quote from David McBraney, and it goes like this. Quote, persistence plus luck is what changes minds, not genius. The ideas that change the world are the ones in the heads of people who refuse to give up. End quote. Well, that's all for now, folks. So I'm happy to announce that we are officially back to being a weekly podcast instead of bi-weekly. So with that, I promise this time that we'll see you next Monday. (laughs) 